Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Truth Seekers. You're listening to A Measure of Truth on BlogTalkRadio.com, and I'm your host, Michael Fordham. If you've just clicked the link on my webpage or you're listening on BlogTalkRadio.com or even the BlogTalkRadio player on my Facebook page and you want to call in live, look, we'd love to talk with you. So give us a call. The number is 347-326-9470. Oh, need a minute to get something to write with? But don't worry, I'll give the number again right after the commentary. Or if you like, you can Twitter me your questions and comments at twitter.com slash a measure of truth. Also, if you haven't yet, why don't you look me up on Facebook? I'm the Michael Fordham with a photo of me in studio, and you can always email me your questions and comments at a measure of truth at gmail.com. Look, we got a great show for you today. We'll be right back after this. Tonight on A Measure of Truth, we take a deep dive into opioid addiction and recovery with author of Hands Like You're Praying, Sam Anthony Lucania, who has received five stars on Amazon.com. You need new eyes to see. Opioid addiction is an epidemic and national crisis that has reached into every demographic in America. It's not always peer pressure or experimentation that can lead to drug abuse and addiction. For some, it can start with just a simple medical procedure or diagnosis followed by a prescribed pain medication. We all know someone nowadays who struggles with addiction. Follow the true story and take a walk inside the life of an addict. Recovering drug addict and alcoholic Sam Lucania will tell you what happened, what it was like, and 
what it's like now. He will have you learn that there is indeed hope in recovery and that we can turn our lives around when we take the right steps. Addicts are not bad people that need to do good. They're sick people that need to get well. In this book, you will learn how to deal with being hurt by your loved ones and how you can support them in their darkest moments. See how the correction system does not correct anything. See how drugs and alcohol wreak havoc on the mind, body, and soul. And hear firsthand from the wife of an addict as she describes what it is like waiting for a husband to get out of jail. Get her perspective as she waited for the doctors to tell her whether or not her husband would live or die. Hands Like Your Praying is full of highs and lows. Experience them for yourself through an addict and his wife's point of view. San Lucania, welcome to A Measure of Truth. Sam, are Thank you there? Thank you so much for having me on. I am. Thank you so much for having me on, man. I was just listening to that. It's the first time I've heard <laughs> somebody else read that with so much passion, and uh, I just needed a moment, man. That was great. Thank you. <laughs> oh, well, thank you, Sam. You know, I, I'm really excited to um, have you on the show, um, and one of the reasons why, you know, you, you know, most people have heard stories like this you know, of people who are um, at the breaking point and have sort of fallen down. And um, one of the primary reasons why I I love your story so much is because most don't end well. And yours has a great testimony and a great story of how you found a way through your struggle to give back something that so many people need. So tell us about that. Thanks. I like to say it was uh, his plan, not mine. You know, they, they, they tell people that suffer from substance use disorder, also known as addiction, that if you show up and you get sober and you stay sober, that your dreams will become reality. And that's a noble statement. It's very encouraging, but it was a lie. Because what I want to tell people is that if you get sober and you stay sober, your reality will actually surpass your dreams. Because mm. I never even dreamt that my life would be as good as it is today. Uh, when I started writing the book in 2015, I thought I was going to jail for a very long time. And that's why I started writing mm-hmm. it, if I'm being honest. You know, I never wow. thought that, you know, I'd be sharing my testimony from large stages in front of hundreds of thousands of people and be an author with people calling me saying, I've read your book. And because I was able to relate, I finally reached out and I asked for help. Like, I mean, my life is beyond what I ever imagined for myself. I really hope that my wife wouldn't leave me and I might be able to get a job mm-hmm. at McDonald's because now I got to check off that felony box, but you know, right, it's so right. much better than that now. Yeah. You, you know, and I love not only your story, but the title of the book, it almost identifies a breaking point for you. I'm not sure if it is or not, but at least a, an epiphany uh, explain to our listeners the title of your book, Hands Like You're Praying, and what that means. So I don't know if God just thought I needed a clever title for a book, but what, when most people see that and hear that, the first thought is prayer, religion, and although there is scripture within the book, uh, I actually got the title from when I got arrested in 2015. Uh, the detective showed up at my house. Uh, I met them outside because I, I knew it was about to go down, and they told me to turn around and put my hands behind my back like I'm praying. And then he mm. placed the handcuffs on me, which is why the mm-hmm. cover, the symbolism of the cover is that the praying hands with the cuffs and the bottles, because I was just, I was a prisoner to myself. I was a prisoner to 
the disease. I was a prisoner to the substances. And, you know, I just want to be free of that now. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's a great illustration on the cover of the book. And I, I just want to, you know, go all the way back and let's talk about how this progression took place because, you know, these addictions, especially opioid addiction seems to sneak up on people and they just don't see it coming. You know, um, they're just going about their, their norm. And then sometimes something can impact them and it changes it all. And it takes things to the left and they just keep going. So tell us your story. How did it happen with you? So the addiction started around 16 years old, but everything prior mm. to that actually started at 12. Now, I took my first drink when I was 12 years old. And when a lot of people hear that, the assumption is that I come from a broken home. You know, my parents must be divorced. There's addiction runs in my family. I was neglected or abused as a child, something, right? But the mm. reality is none of that applied to me. You know, I grew up in the church. My parents are still married to this day. No neglect, no abuse, no addiction in my family. But what was mm. going on with me is this. At 12 years old, I was full of anxiety. Every, I didn't know it was anxiety at the time, though, because mm. we didn't talk about it mm-hmm. back then. But, I mean, everything made me anxious, man. Waking up, going to school, talking to girls, talking to anybody, because I had no social skills, because they don't teach that in the classroom, and it wasn't being taught to me at home. You know, I would get bullied in class. I'd get picked on. Kids would make fun of me because I was small. I wasn't athletic. I wasn't smart. I didn't fit in with the popular kids. I wasn't handsome. Like, I didn't know where I fit. You know, I like to put it like this. I don't know what you thought about me, but I was always really concerned with what I thought you thought about me. I was just a prisoner of my mind. Mm. And and when I took that drink, all those feelings went away. There was no more insecurity, no more fear, no more depression. I didn't care what anybody thought about me. So alcohol had done for me what I couldn't do for myself. Uh, You know, then when I got into high school, I started with what most people would refer to as, you know, gateway drugs or recreational drugs. We've all heard those terms, right? I got news news for your listeners, man. There's no such thing as gateway drugs. The gateway drug is the first one that you try. Now, for somebody, it might be weed. For somebody else, it might be a prescription pill. And I can guarantee Mm. you right now, anybody that is of middle school or high school age or has kids that are in those levels, if they're already drinking and vaping, that is their gateway drug. But more right. importantly than that, it's not the, the substance that's gateway, it's the behavior. It's the behavior behind the right, intention right. of why I go. was doing what I was doing, you know, mm-hmm. and why these, like, what's wrong with these kids nowadays mentally that they can't go from one class to another without vaping in the bathroom? What's going on with them spiritually and socially that they can't go to a, a, you know, a party and hang out in a basement with people they've known their entire life without a red solo cup in their hand? You know, that's gateway behavior. And I've never heard a a story make that statement more true than this. Um, Because I do a lot of speaking in schools, and the teachers will fill me in about what's going on so I can kind of touch on certain topics. And I found out that there was a student that needed to be disciplined for sniffing crystal light, pretending that it was something else. So, I mean, if we're going Mm. by practical standards, Mm -hmm. crystal light is that kid's gateway drug, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But more importantly, it's the behavior. Why is anything going up his nose in the first place? You know, mm-hmm. if that behavior doesn't get checked out, it's going to lead down a path of destruction. It did for me. You know, then I had, um, you know, during one of the open Q&As and one of my talks, I had a kid say, well, what about recreational drug use? So on the weekend with my friends, you know, that's cool, right? I told them, no, it's not for two reasons. One, when I think recreation, I think skateboarding. I think paintball. I think cornhole. I don't think about <laughs> popping Molly and doing lines of cocaine and taking Xanax. Right. <clears throat> but more importantly, 
every single person I know today, myself included, that struggles with addiction started off as a recreational drug user. Recre- just, you know, red solo cups and pot, every single one of us. So, you know, that's how it all started for me. And then at 16 years old, I got addicted to prescription pain pills. Now, I like to tell people, you notice my language shifted here, and I actually use the word addicted because this all started off with me trying to self-medicate because I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. It started off with me trying to fit in so I could be accepted by my peers. But then there's some things. I don't care how strong you are. I don't care what religion you are, male or female, black or white, what side of town you live on, rich or poor, addiction doesn't discriminate. You know, there's a saying in recovery, from Yale to jail, from Park Avenue to Park Bench, drugs and Mm. alcohol does not discriminate. It doesn't care who you are. And I had surgery on my ankle, and I got prescribed Percocet. Now, it's easy to tell yourself that you're going to take just one of anything before you actually do it. But once whatever one is gets into your system, you usually lose the ability to control when you're going to take your next one or when you're going to have your last one. Now, for me, that's usually when I end up in the ICU or in handcuffs. I took one pill of Percocet because I was in a lot of pain, and it was all over from there. I fell in love with it right away. And I'm a smart guy. You know, if one is good, two must be better. So I took another one. See, today I know that more is not better. More just means more. And more almost killed me later on in my life. You know, I wonder if I would have known then what I know today about prescription pain medication, you know, opiates, if I still would have taken them. Because what I know today is that prescriptions like Vicodin, Lortab, Norco, uh, Percocet, morphine, codeine, lean, uh, fentanyl, all that stuff is is heroin in a bottle. That's it. Mm. The only difference difference is one comes from the pharmacy and the other one comes from the dope man. That's the only difference. Oh, and you, then, you, you know, you're saying it's really what's in there is a, um, a, a type same of exact, heroin. Same it's feeling. Just... Yeah, it's synthetic heroin. That's exactly what it is. So when you go, if you're in the ER and you get an IV full of morphine, if you were to, if you were to shoot up heroin, you'd get the same feeling. And this is why we have so many people, regardless of all those outside variables, the ethnicity, race, religion, that are getting addicted to heroin because they're getting a prescription for 50 Vicodin because they got a tooth pulled and they take it and they like it. And then they take another one. And here's the main difference. And I like to explain this to people. I was born an alcoholic, you know, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is basically their playbook. They describe what the alcoholic is, you know, a physical allergy of mind and body. Like I can't take one drink. Something happened well, to me when I, Oh, go, so wait a second. You're saying you were born an alcoholic, that you had a pre predisposition to alcohol from birth? Correct. And this is, this is the difference between alcoholism and drug addiction. You mm. cannot make an alcoholic out of somebody that was not born that way. There's plenty of problem drinkers, but the problem drinker and the alcoholic are two different people because given the right circumstances, you know, the right repercussions, the problem drinker can actually stop. The alcoholic cannot And that's why so many people drink themselves into death jails and institutions. We can take 30 random people at any given time, stick them in a room for 30 days, give them all a fifth of vodka. On day 31, we might come out and have a few alcoholics on our hands, people that were actually born that way. And then the rest will be able to walk away. We can take that same control group of 30 people, stick them in a room for 30 days with 100 milligrams of Oxycontin every day, 
On day 31, not only will every single person come out wanting it, they will need it because they will get physically sick without it. And that's the Mm. big difference between addiction and drug addiction or uh, alcoholism and drug addiction is that people are getting hooked on this stuff because of what's coming out of the pharmaceutical industry. You know, they're getting prescribed you know, Vicodin for a tooth pull or an appendectomy or the mom after her C-section, whatever the case is. And the stuff is so strong and so expensive. And that's where Mm. the main factor lies where people turn away from that bottle of prescription to heroin because the bottle of Percocet goes for a dollar a milligram. If I've got a 300 milligram a day habit, that's 300 bucks. I can get that same high for less than 50 with heroin. But people Mm. gravitate towards pills because they come from the doctor. They're supposed to be safe. There's also a lot of quality control going on there. Um, You know, after high school, I had a lot of not yets, and doing cocaine was a not yet for me. Uh, A not yet basically looks like this before I I get into that aspect of my story. So when I was 12 years old, I saw my father smoking cigarettes. My father looked so cool when he would smoke a cigarette, and I wanted to be cool too. But I told myself I'm not going to smoke cigarettes. Not yet. When I started smoking Mm. cigarettes, I saw the kids in high school smoking pot, and they were the popular kids. You know, I wanted to be popular too, but I told myself, I don't want to smoke pot. Not yet. Did you see where I'm going with this? Right, right. So doing cocaine was a not yet for me. Now, going back to the quality control, there's times that I would go down to the ghetto. Oh, wait. (laughs) You're moving too fast for me. Where did cocaine come in? Uh, Right after high school. So, but... Is that an opiate? No, cocaine is an upper. Cocaine is speed. So the the prescription equivalent to cocaine would be Adderall or Ritalin, the ADHD oh. medications. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's my. basically the equivalent. So your methamphetamines mm-hmm. and your cocaines, their uh, pharmaceutical equivalent would be your ADHD medications. Your mm. pharmaceutical equivalent to uh, heroin is your prescriptions, your Percocets, your Vicodins, and things like that, your morphine. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. So, and that's where, you know, I like to talk about that quality control because I was living in New Jersey at the time. I would go down to Newark. I'd find the corner boys, and I would get my cocaine. There's times I got really good drugs. There's other times where I got baby powder or salt. There's no quality control going on in the street corners. Every single time I took a tab of Percocet that was built in a pharmacy, you know, I knew exactly what I had 100% of the time. And that's why people tend to gravitate towards the pills. But it just usually gets either a financial issue, they're just too expensive, or a supply and demand issue because they're cracking down hard in regards to the way that they're writing prescriptions now. So, you know, if you, if you don't know somebody selling them on the street, there's only so many doctors that you can hustle before they catch on to you. There's only so many medicine cabinets that you're going to be able to, to go through before you run out of people who trust you in their home. And then what's your last resort? You go and buy heroin. Mm. And that's why this wow. is all starting to stem out of control. So, you know? um, so you're saying you did the um, cocaine. Did you in up doing heroin as well? I did not. So this is where my story Mm. progresses after high school and gets things really bad. So Mm -hmm. um, I actually left 
the only reason I started doing cocaine is because all my friends were doing it and I didn't really have anywhere else to go. In 2004, I actually left New Jersey and I moved down to Virginia because I was trying to run away from my problems. I thought all my problems were situational, people, places, and things. If I could, my, my problems had nothing to do with Sam. It was where I was living. It was what I, the people I was hanging out with, my environment. If I can change all that, I'll be able to change too. But the problem with that was everywhere I went, there I was. I couldn't run away from myself no matter how hard I tried. Now, when mm-hmm. I got down to Virginia, I didn't know any dealers or anything like that. And I was slightly trying to clean my life up a little bit. So I told myself, I'm not going to do cocaine anymore, but I'm just going to drink. And I did what most uh, counselors or clinicians would refer to as cross-addiction because I left all the hard drugs alone, but I started drinking twice as much. And this is where Mm. I really recognized what my alcoholism was around the age of 23, 24, because I was drinking a fifth of vodka a day just so I could function, Mm. just so I could walk out of the front door and confront people because I have no tools for living whatsoever. Now, Mm. right after that is when the opioids or the opiates, opioids, uh, you know, that's when things really got out of control there. So I moved in with a girlfriend of mine and her, uh, her mother's boyfriend had a prescription for Percocet. And I was in the kitchen one day, I opened up the cabinet and the bottle was there. Now I remembered what these pills did to me when I was 16 years old, when they were prescribed to me. So once again, not thinking much of anything, I told myself I'll take just one. And then a half an hour later after that pill kicked in, I, I felt really good. So I went back and I took another one. And then the day after that, I took four. And then the day after that, I took six. And by the end of the week, I cleaned out this guy's entire supply. Now, there was two problems with that. One, I took the medication that was medically prescribed to him for a purpose, and now he doesn't have his meds anymore. But two, mm. and the bigger of the problems as far as I was concerned was I ran out of my supply because his pills were my supply, and I just took them all now. And now I'm on day eight or nine where I've been taking them every single day consistently. And the first thing my body thinks about when I wake up is, dude, where's those pills? And it's not, I want those pills. It's I need those pills and I need them now. What am I, what are, what are you willing to do to go get them? And I was mm. willing to go to any length. I was willing to buy them from people. I was willing to hot. I was willing to lie, hustle, manipulate and con you to get them. And I also started doctor shopping. And now this led to an arrest because in 2006, I actually got arrested for prescription fraud. Uh, I got a prescription for five Percocet because I over-exaggerated some symptoms. And the doctor was doing what he was supposed to be doing. He, he wrote me a small prescription for five. But to me, that was kind of a waste of time. I warmed up with, you know, five pills and a beer. So I made copies of this prescription, and I dropped it off at multiple pharmacies, and I got caught. Oh, hmm. Yeah. So this was the downhill because I, dude, I've been, I'll tell you, I've been addicted to a lot of things, man. I was a pack of Newports a day smoker for 10 years. I was a fifth of vodka for 10 years, powder cocaine, ecstasy pills, mushrooms, chewing tobacco, prescription pain pills are hands down the hardest drugs I've ever had to get off of my life. Every single time. And I, unfortunately I've been in and out of recovery since 2004. So I've had several attempts at, getting sober and staying in long-term sobriety, but hands down every single time, the prescription drugs are the worst. You know, they, um, they just, they take over your mind and your body and nothing else matters except getting that next fix. 
You know, and there's a reason people, when you see people, you know, you hear in the news, people lying, stealing, cheating, committing crimes, committing suicide. A lot of that happens when they're sober. A lot of that happens when they're not under the influence. Because wow. of what's the disease mm-hmm. aspect, the addiction aspect, that mental illness aspect, that, that compulsion aspect that nobody quite understands. It's, it's not what goes on with me when I'm under the influence, when I'm drinking, when I'm using. It's what goes on in me when I'm not drinking and using. And I heard somebody state it perfectly one time. If you knew how I felt when I was not drinking and using drugs, you wouldn't ask me why I did it. And that, and it's always when we're not under the influence that we have that, that terrible feeling, that depression, that anxiety, those emotions of, I don't understand how do I live life. And then people just go to extremes to end that feeling because there's really only two ways to end that compulsion and uh, three ways, you know, a, a whole lot of drugs, uh, a whole lot of God or to end your, end it. And that's unfortunately when a lot of people do it is when, when they're not using you know, because that's so where the disease. What was the you. transition point for you, Sam? When were you able to actually start working on making yourself better, making the decision? Was it made for you based on circumstances, or did you come to a conclusion you just had to do something and you tried to do it differently? So I've had multiple attempts at recovery, and I'll bring you through three of them. The very first time I went to recovery was to get my girlfriend off my back. I showed up late for work. She wasn't happy with the way I was living my wife life. She thought I, uh, I drank too much. I used too many drugs. So I went for her, which was the wrong reason to go. Now, I'll, with that being said, there were a lot of seeds planted when I went to those few meetings, but I was not able to stay in recovery that time. In 2013, uh, I had the lowest bottom that I had had up until that point. Now, Every night when my wife would get off of work, she would call me and tell me she was on her way home. And I would always answer. But this night when she called, I didn't answer. So she got a little nervous. She rushed to the house. When she got to the house, she saw my car in front of the house and just assumed to herself, okay, Sammy fell asleep. But when she walked in the house, it was cold, dark, and quiet. And according to her, there was actually an overwhelming sense of vodka in the air. And she Mm. looked around. She didn't see anything. She didn't hear anything. And then when she went into the other room, there I was. I was on the floor, and I was unresponsive and unconscious because I overdosed on prescription pain medication. And she had to go get the neighbor. They gave me CPR. They called 911. I actually woke up like 18 hours later in the ICU with a tube down my throat with my wife standing over me saying, honey, honey, it's okay. You're in the hospital. You overdosed. had no idea how I got there. So that was my bottom. You know, there's a saying that every addict, every alcoholic has to hit bottom before they get well. That's a very old school way of thinking because, unfortunately, a lot of times a bottom for people like us, for people like me, is death, jails, and institutions. And this time I had one foot in the grave. So I did the hardest thing I ever had to do in my life, and that was ask for help. And I got out, I got into treatment, I got into 12-step recovery, I got a mentor, I got a sponsor, I started working out, I went, started going to church. For me, I learned that my recovery has to be kind of what I refer to as this holy trinity. I have to have my spiritual fitness, I have to have my mental fitness, and I have to have my physical fitness. Now, my spiritual fitness 
that is my religion. I got, you know, I'm a Christian. I go to church. You know, I, I make sure that I'm, I'm trying to live by those principles. My mental fitness is my 12-step recovery game. You know, I go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I work the steps. I have a sponsor. I have sponsees. I work with other people in the program. And then my physical fitness is me just actually taking care of myself, eating, eating well, you know, working out and things like that. When I don't have all three of those, my, 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 my spirituality, my mental game, my fitness, it gets out of whack. And that's what happened this time. About a year into my recovery after that overdose, uh, you know, I like to say that my confidence turned to cockiness and God decided that he was going to shut that down real quick. And, uh, you know, I, I, I picked up a year chip. I never went back to a meeting. And as I started slowly getting away from the things that got me sober, I was getting closer and closer to a drink or a drug. You know, I finally learned that recovery, you don't graduate from it. You don't work the 12 steps and then you get your, you get your diploma. You don't go to treatment for 30 days and on day 31 you're, you're, you know, clean and ready to go. It's a daily process. The same way that working out is a daily process. Nobody works out one time and it's fit for the rest of their life. You know, just like everybody had breakfast this morning, and I imagine that everybody plans on having breakfast tomorrow and the day after that as well. My recovery works the same way. And because I was not working it on a daily basis and being proactive about making sure that sobriety is number one in my life, I ended up having another relapse. And this is where the mental side of this disease just totally took over every aspect of my life. I was sitting around work one morning and I was feeding for pills, the, the prescription pills, the opiates, because I didn't have any. And I didn't know anybody I could buy them from. I couldn't go to any doctors and get an honest prescription. But I did know a friend of mine who had some pills in her house. And I went to a house uninvited and I took her medication. I didn't oh. know like so many people do these days that she had a camera in her home. And when she mm. saw me on camera in her home going through her things, taking her pills, she called the cops on me and rightfully so. And that was my biggest bottom, you know, and it's not because I got caught. It's because I never, I'm not that guy. I'm not a criminal, you know, and, and that's what I wanted to show the judge when I went for sentencing. I'm not a bad person that needed to do good things. I was a sick person that needed help getting well. And I was so sick that stone cold sober at 10 o'clock in the morning, I drove to this lady's house, went into her house and I took her medication. That's what this disease does to you. That's what that mental obsession and that phenomena of craving that people have never struggled from addiction will understand. Because people look at my life today and they hear these stories. They're like, no way. There's no, dude, I've, I've got my mugshot. I can show you it happened. Uh, but that's also the power of what God can do in somebody's life as well. Because he doesn't just take my, my darkest moments and make them okay. He takes the nastiest, dirtiest, ugliest, deepest stuff that I've ever done in my life and doesn't just fix it, but he turns it into something beautiful because what I'm doing today is using all of these experiences in my life to help other people. And it's the most rewarding thing that I've ever done. Now, is this enough? Is this is what really helped you to address the issues that caused you to drink and caused you to abuse drugs? Um, what, what, what did you do about those things? How did you go about, um, you know, taking a hard look at those things and doing something that was progressive that made a, a difference. There was a lot of counseling involved, you know, and there, mm -hmm. I, I had to get my counseling. My wife had to get her counseling because she went through a lot. I mean, she found yeah. me on the floor overdose. She saw me get arrested. 
uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, she was 10 weeks pregnant when I, when I went oh, to jail man. and she had a miscarriage, mm. she had a miscarriage while I was locked up, you know, so I had to get my counseling. She had to get her counseling, but then we had to get our counseling together because right, we had some things right. that we needed to work on as a couple and in our marriage. And, you know, that's the whole purpose of working the steps for anybody that's not familiar with 12 step recovery and how it works. You know, unfortunately the media and, you know, primetime TV kind of, kind of paints a bad image around it. And, you know, they think it's just somebody sitting around saying, hi, my name's Joe, I'm an alcoholic. And, you know, I had a bad day, but because I'm here, I'm not going to like, that's not the way it works. The whole purpose of working the steps is to take a look at yourself. They say, you seek, you seek God, you clean house and you help others. And that's what mm-hmm. the steps are really about. The word alcohol, if we're talking about that particular fellowship, is only mentioned once. Out of all 300-plus words in all 12 steps, the word alcohol is mentioned once. The word God's mentioned about a half a dozen times. So if that's what the program is really about, is about getting to the root cause of all that stuff. And then you keep coming back and you, do, you stay here to help somebody else. You know, very rarely, if ever, do I go to a meeting because – Oh my God, I'm going to drink if I, if I don't go to a meeting. No, it's usually, I don't go to see what I can get out of it. Now I see what I can bring to it because there might be some old timer there. And when I say old timer, I mean, somebody that's got a lot, a lot of recovery, you know, old timer technically could be 40 years old if they, if they started getting sober when they were 20 and they've got 20 years of sobriety and maybe they're not really working their program the way they're supposed to. But then I say something that makes the light bulb go off in their head, you know, or maybe there's a newcomer in there that is going to relate to something I say where he's not going to relate to something that somebody else says. And that's why I continue to go back now. Now, if I go to a meeting with the intention of helping somebody and somebody gets anything out of it, that's awesome, man. But I can guarantee you 10 times out of 10, if I go with the intention of helping other people and nobody gets any help, they'll remain clean and sober that day. Right. Yeah. They Hmm. say that sobriety is the one gift that you actually have to give away if you want to keep it. You know, um, going back to your wife, um, yeah, she she went through quite a bit. And um, I have to say she's an amazing woman to go through all of that with you and suffer that trauma without you being there to comfort her, as well as um, waiting for you to, you know, get out of jail and restart your life again. Um, Just tell us a little bit about you know, because most people won't get that second chance that you got. Um, what does that mean for someone to actually be there for you and willing to go through that hurtful process to, to make things whole again? It was huge, man. And I thank you for saying the kind things about my wife. You know, I have to say she's, she's a rock, man. I'd be dead literally and figuratively if not for that woman. And because of our faith, leaving me was never a consideration. Technically, it's always an option, um, but it was never mm-hmm, a consideration right, right. because of what we believe. And mm-hmm. I'm very grateful for that. I'm very thankful for that. And having her there as my support system allowed my recovery to happen faster than maybe it would have if she wasn't here. Because it's a family disease, and addiction affects people that don't even have it. I never meant to hurt my wife. You know, but there's, I like to talk about suicidal behavior. Now, when a lot of people think of the term suicidal they assume like, well, somebody's sitting on the edge of a bed writing a note with a bottle of pills in their hand. And that is one form of it. But then if you look up suicidal being destructive to one's own interests, Mm. and that was me, you know, I was being Mm -hmm. destructive to my own interests with no 
consideration for any repercussions it might have towards me or my loved ones. And she was there for me. She stood by me. And because I, I, I knew, and now I had to do a lot of work. I had to earn a lot of trust back. It's not like, right. you know, I overdosed, I got out of the hospital and, you know, the next day we're, you know, it was, a, we were in the honeymoon phase again, but, you know, I had to put in a lot of work. And by doing these things one day after another, I'm able to stay in recovery, which is a very important thing. And she's part of my recovery because she's not an alcoholic. She is not an addict. She's a normal person. But when I would relapse, she would relapse. She would relapse spiritually. She would relapse mm. emotionally. Mm. And mm-hmm. this is our this is our recovery. Like we've got she's thirty weeks pregnant and we have a twenty two month old son. Um, she knows how important it is for me to be on the phone with you right now talking about these things in an effort to not only help myself but to help others understand too. And that's part of the recovery. There's no bickering back and forth like, oh, what? You're doing a podcast at 7 o'clock? No, she knows that this has to come first in my life. And this is part of my recovery is doing this stuff. And when I say recovery comes first in my life, I mean that literally and figuratively because anything that I put before my sobriety, I'm going to lose. I was told that if, any, if I put sobriety first, mm. anything that comes mm-hmm. second will be first class. But if I decide that I'm too busy to go to that meeting, uh, you know, my, my work is too busy for me to, you know, to answer the phone for this newcomer. Now, my wife is too important for me to get on the phone and, you know, talk about these things on the podcast. Eventually, my recovery is just on the back burner. If it's on the back burner, I'm going to end up dead or in jail. There's no doubt about that because I've already proven it. They say there's only three places for somebody that suffers with a disease, locked up, covered up, or sobered up. I've been in jail. I had one foot in the grave, and I haven't had a drink or a mind or a mood-altering substance since October 5th, 2015, and I can tell you this is the easier way every single time. Wow. So not only is your story um, prolific, it's very recent. Um, you, you've, you know, it's just um, four years ago. Yeah, I'm, I've been struggling with this stuff. I mean, I took my first drink 20 plus years ago. I went to my first meeting of 12-step recovery in 2004. I've relapsed probably a dozen times between now and then, and this is where I am now. And it's funny, I'll hear some people say things to the effect like, oh, well, you've only been sober three years. Like, what do you know? Why are you the one that's out there helping people? I tell you what, man, for a newcomer coming in, somebody with three years is a myth. I'm the man, the myth, and the legend. If you just crawled your butt into a meeting of 12-step recovery with your head down and your tail between your legs, and I stand up and say I've been sober for three years, that's not even in the near – you can't even conceive that idea that somebody could do that. But the guy that just picked up a 60-day chip, that's real. And that's how this all works. You know, when I first went – when I I heard guys say they had 20 years of sobriety, I'm like, what are you doing here? You won go home. Why are you still here? But it's because they're still coming back that they were able to actually get that. And that, and that's Mm. how this all works. It's just all peer recovery. It's peer support. And, um, you know, that's why I I don't take anything for granted right now. I don't have over three years of sobriety. I don't plan on staying sober for 20 years. I'm going to not drink and not use today. That's it. That's all I need to do tomorrow. I'm going to wake up and I'm going to do the same thing. 
tomorrow mm-hmm. I'll wake up and I will not drink. I will not use. I'll call my sponsor. I will pray. I will work with others. I will try to spread a message of positivity. And that's the only thing that I control is right there. You know, it was always so hard for me to go back after a relapse. You know, it's just that pride talk. And my pride lies to me in my own voice. But the reason it was hard to go back is because I had to start the clock over. You know, I had to go turn in my chips, tell everybody I messed up again. I drank. I took drugs. I need another 24-hour chip. I got to start from scratch. It wasn't until I was able to get to where I am now that I realized that the only time time matters is when I don't have any. The only time I've ever really been concerned with the amount of sobriety that I've had is when I didn't have any. That's how you meant one year, two years, three years. It all feels the same to me because right now it's just today. But when I relapse, I start thinking like, oh, I'm only going to have 24 hours and I'm going to have to pick up another 30-day chip and I'm going to have to do 60. None of that matters as long as I keep my, my, my focus where it's supposed to be. So, Sam, what led you to write a book about your story and, you know, be so transparent about this? Because this isn't just telling your story in the meetings and helping other people. This is putting yourself out there for everyone to take a, you know, a look at you under the microscope. Uh, a couple things. One, like I said, I started writing after the arrest, but after my overdose, the few close people that knew me, knew my story and they were all, Oh, you should write a book. But you know, I was too busy and too grandiose and had too much of an ego to, you know, have time to deal with something so petty. And I started writing after the arrest. It took me two years to write it from start to finish. And I started writing because I thought I was going to jail and I was going to need something to do. But when I realized that I was actually going to write, a, some of the book was written while I was locked up. Uh, I'd say 80% of it was written before and after my uh, incarceration. And I got to a point where I started writing. I was already so deep into it. I was like, all right, you know what? If I can get this published and one person reads it, that just one person, and they can get some help, then it was all worth it. And if one person doesn't read it, it helped keep me sober for the two mm-hmm. years that I was writing it. You know? right. And that's actually how I got involved in the speaking and where I really started going public. So mm-hmm. for me, Before we get into that, I think, though, I wanted. I wanted to ask the question, so how did writing this book help you? What what was it that connected with you that helped you to be able to stay sober or benefit you on your road to recovery? It was very therapeutic to put it all down on paper. There's something physically writing something out with a pen and a pad versus making notes on your phone or typing it up in a Word doc. Um, you know, just physically putting pen to paper was very therapeutic. And the way that I was writing it, going back to, you know, I told the story about when I took that first drink at 12 years old. You know, I told the story about, you know, the very first time I ever smoked. And, and to, to look back and be able to read over that, you know, it was almost like my own therapist and sitting on a couch and the therapist looking at you say, tell me about your childhood. Well, I was telling people about my childhood. I was just writing it down for everybody to be able to read later and getting all those thoughts out of my head, purging them on paper, and then re-editing it to make it user-friendly and deliverable so somebody can actually take it, digest it, and walk away with something positive. And there was an accountability factor there too. You know, I, I've literally raised my hand and shouted from the rooftops that I've been arrested six times. I've been in three treatments. I've overdosed. I've been in jail. I've stole pills from people. And there's an accountability factor right now to my sobriety. You know, I'm by no means famous. You know, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to walk in, into, you know, 
any public forum in any space and people are going to know who I am. But for my town, where I live, where I, where I frequent on a daily basis, people know who I am. And there's an accountability that if I'm having a bad day and I consider walking into an ABC store, there's a second consideration that says, dude, everybody knows me where I live and somebody's going to see me. And that little bit of accountability makes a big difference for me. And the accountability mm-hmm. that I never know if I'm in another city and I'm about to sit down for a bar at a happy hour and maybe a random social media person is going to come up to me, one of my social media followers, and say, well, wait, wait a second, aren't you Sam? Aren't you the author of Hands Like You're Praying? Like, why are you sitting down here having a drink at happy hour? I thought you were supposed to be sober. So for me, screaming from the rooftops actually helps to keep me accountable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you you sort of built a fence for yourself. <laughs> yeah, and don't that's not for everybody. I'm not suggesting that everybody yeah. runs out into this into this middle of the street and you know tells their business. But I mean, uh, for me, I, I just it, I had tried it so many other ways, you know. And they call alcoholics anonymous for a reason, narcotics anonymous for a reason. And it's your business whether you want to break your own anonymity. I don't have a right. right to break somebody else's anonymity, but if I want to break mine, that's my business. And I did that a long time ago. And I did it for a couple of reasons. One, to hold myself accountable. But two, people don't know where to go when they deal with these things because it's, it's almost embarrassing. You know, there's a stigma behind it. Well, you know, if I'm struggling from addiction, who do I ask? Well, I don't want to tell my doctor that. Well, I can't tell my boss I'll get fired. I don't want the neighbors to know that. I, like, people don't know where to go. Now right. I've given people hope. And I, I've received numerous messages from the most random people that I've been connected with in some way, shape, or form saying, hey, I read your book, or I saw your most recent uh, post on Twitter, or, hey, I, I just heard this podcast that you were on, and, you know, when you were talking, I, I felt like you were talking about me. Like, I need help. Can you help me? And that's the most amazing thing ever. Like, that's, the, the sales from the book are awesome, but my real paycheck is when somebody sends me a DM and they're, they're asking me for help. Like, dude, they're asking six arrest retreatments, overdose in jail. They're asking this guy for help. That's the most rewarding thing I've ever done. So, mm. you know, that's, that's why I did it. So I can help others and help myself. And tell us how um, the speaking circuit developed. Um, how, how did that all start for you? And how did you feel about speaking to audiences about your story in the beginning? So it, it kind of started by accident, but if you're a believer, you know, there's no accidents in his world. So right. when I submitted the book to the publisher, it was about an eight month process before I was actually going to have a physical copy in my hands. Now the book, the writing, the editing, every like all that stuff was keeping me very busy. And once I hit, once I hit submit, I was like, okay, eight months. Now what? Well, I was a manager at the gym that I worked at in the personal training department but I needed something else and I didn't know what to do. So I felt like I was being led or called to go share my story with some kids because I work with a lot of people in recovery. Um, I go to the jails and I talk in the jails. I work with people in recovery, but at that point it's all damage control. You know, they're already there. They already have the problem. I wanted the opportunity to see if I can get in front of the problem. Can I reach somebody with my testimony, mm, with my man. story, with my experience before it becomes a problem? But I didn't know how to do that. So I went where everybody goes these days when they have a question about something, Facebook. And I went on Facebook and I said, hey, I want to share my story in the school. Can somebody help me? And I, I like to tell this story when I talk about this. You know, there's a saying, is it odd or is it God? 
You guys heard me say that in 2006, I got arrested for the prescription fraud while I was sentenced to treatment. And when I went to treatment, I had a substance abuse counselor whose name was Jennifer. Now, I saw her 10 years later on social media. We had a bunch of mutual friends, so I friended her. Guess who saw that question that I asked about wanting to share in the schools? Jennifer. (laughs) She was no longer a counselor for uh, the substance abuse clinic. She was the director of student services for all of my county schools. Wow. Yeah, and she, so she remembered me. She saw what I was looking to do. So she said, hey, we're having a presentation two Fridays from now. If you'd like, I'll give you 20 minutes to tell your story in front of the kids. I'm like, cool. Like, what is this? Is this a health class? Is it PE? Like, who am I talking to? She said, no, it's going to be all the juniors and seniors. It was about 800 kids. Wow. So the very first, the first time I grabbed the mic in front of a public forum was in front of 800 of the most critical human beings on earth teenagers. And I couldn't really recall what I said. I know I talked a little bit about my story, but it was all kind of a blur if I'm being honest. But when I walked out of there that day, I didn't know how, and I didn't know where, and I didn't know when I just knew I had to do it again. So Mm. I started doing some research. I started, uh, I knew a couple people that spoke professionally. I reached out, I asked questions. I looked up podcasts. I read books. I started speaking anywhere, anytime to anybody that would listen so I could practice refine my my delivery, my content, uh, my hand gestures, everything. And then it eventually just kept on growing, and I was doing it for free for a long time. And this is where, the, where it all fits. I, I finally realized to myself that I had never, ever been so free or uh, passionate about anything that I was willing to do it for free. And that's when I decided and made a decision that I need to find a way to live indoors and do this at the same time. And, you know, <laughs> Sam Anthony... Sam Anthony Speaks was born and, you know, I've been doing it ever since. And it's hands down the most rewarding thing that I've ever done. Like, you know, again, when I go to schools and I talk and uh, the administration cuts me a check for my honorarium, that's what keeps the lights on in the house. But later Mm -hmm. that night, when I get a DM from a 16 year old girl saying that because she thought I was talking about her, she went home and told her parents that she's suffering from depression. That's my real paycheck. And, And until people stop listening I'm going to continue to speak. Man, that's awesome. Well, you know, I could see a lot of momentum in what you're doing and, um, and um, I wish you well. And I just want to make sure before we run out of time, believe it or not, we've only got about, um, about 10 minutes left. <laughs> we've been talking. Oh, wow. Man. From the I very like beginning. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I do want to let people know if there's any other ways that they can get your book or they can find out where you're speaking next and all of that. We want to be able to get that out there as well as your social media. Yeah. So just about everything can be found on my uh, website, which is samanthonyspeaks.com. And on the site, there's the buy the book tab. The book is available everywhere. Books are sold. Uh, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, uh, you know, all those places is available, digital format, Kindle, uh, Nook. Uh, my, as you click on the events and media tab, uh, there's some other podcasts I've been on there, some articles that were written about me, and as well as my upcoming events. Uh, if anybody's interested in having me come out and speak to their school, to their community events, their leaders, their law enforcement professionals, healthcare professionals, uh, parents, recovery networks, whatever it is, uh, SamAnthonySpeaks.com. There's an event inquiries page, or they could always uh, email me at Sam at SamAnthonySpeaks.com. Wow, that's great. And um, 
Wow. Uh, you know, you're a very dynamic speaker. I enjoyed your story. Great storyteller. Um, what's next for you? Uh, I'm sure that there's a few more layers to this. So I got a couple things in the pipe. Uh, right next, uh, I'm really trying to land this TED Talk so I can get this message yeah. out in front of as many people as possible. So uh, okay. I'm working on the TED Talk next. Um, you know, I've been considering doing another book, but, you know, right now it's really just I'm, I'm just so passionate about standing on stage and, mm-hmm. and talking to students. So I really just want to get in front of as many students as I possibly can. And, you know, if I have the opportunity to reach them from middle school to high school, I'm actually putting together a, uh, an elementary school talk. But, you know, that's going to be a few months in the making because when I talk to students, I don't talk about recovery because they're not there yet. What I do right. is talk about all the things that led up to it. I talk about the anxiety, the depression, the insecurity, the bullying, the fitting in, the body image, uh, the self-esteem, uh, suicidal behavior. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about social media perception versus reality because everybody mm-hmm. nowadays mm-hmm. just walks around oh, comparing their insides to everybody else's highlight reel. And I've got some great examples that I've pulled from my own social media page to just show these kids like, hey, man, what you're looking at, it's not reality. Um, you know, I talk about help-seeking behavior, positive mentorship, and things like that. So I would say what's next, uh, just reaching as many students as possible and then, um, you know, getting the TED Talk so I can get this message in front of as many people as I possibly can because, you know, I can only be one place at one time. Uh, but to get that, uh, you know, a TED Talk up on, uh, you know, the Internet for anybody to see at any time, you know, hopefully I can reach the masses that way and somebody can get just one bullet point, just one tidbit of something that I said and the light bulb goes off and they either realize that they're making bad decisions and they're going there or, wow, based on what I just heard, I think I'm there and I need help. Right, right. And that's all, but that's it, man. That's all just... I want to do. Yeah, but you're going to have to compress it. TED Talks are, what, 20 minutes? Uh, yeah, 12 to 18 minutes. So, uh, you know, I'm yeah. going to have to talk wow. fast. But I'm going to talk. I'm an Italian <laughs> from Jersey. I can talk fast if I have to. Uh, but, yeah, I can, I, I can get the meat and potatoes into 12 to 18 minutes if that's what I have to work with. So, And then, uh, you know, I love telling the, the faith-based side, too. Uh, I gave mm-hmm. a sermon at a local church here, and I was able to – you know, tell the, you know, tell certain aspects of my story that I can't tell in public schools because I have to, you know, respect the separation, uh, the separation of church and state, which I always do. I never want to, you know, offend uh, one person to try to reach a thousand. So, you know, I love mm-hmm. speaking in churches too and telling that side of my story because there's stories that I can tell in the church that I can't tell in the school. Right, right. And, and I was curious about this too. When you when you talk about getting ahead of the problem with young people, so w- what direction do you point them in because they're not ready for you know an AA meeting or something like that? So, so how do you point them to self help for them to actually expose what they're dealing with to the right person and you know do what they can to to get well? So first off, it's allowing giving them the the mental capability to think for themselves that what they're doing is actually incorrect, that there's no value in what I'm doing. There's no value in the fact that I'm vaping every day and to get them mm-hmm. to understand mm-hmm. that the, the gateway behavior, like, wow, what he said makes sense. Like, yeah, I don't really think anything about the fact that I'm vaping, but you know, he's right. I have been vaping more and more lately. And, and I told myself I'm only going to do it on the weekends, but I did it this morning before school. Like, you know, maybe this guy's onto something. Maybe if I continue down this, like what's next? Like I already told myself I'm not vaping during the week and I've done it. 
I've already crossed my mm-hmm. first knot yet. Mm-hmm. So what's next? So that's one way that I get on the prevention side uh, and just encouraging them to, to step up and seek the help that they might need. These kids these days and the parents too, they're just so afraid to ask for help because they're afraid that they're going to get judged. They're going to get in trouble. They're going to break their parents' trust and they're not going to get it back. You know, I just, I, I've heard two fabulous things and I can, I'm going to continue to say these until people tell me to stop. But the first one is everyone is a failure alone but no one is a success by themselves. Mm. Anybody that you look at right now that's on the top had some help getting there. Every single person. It's just like if you've ever watched an award show. The first thing that the person does before they grab their award, they grab the mic and they say, I just want to thank my parents. I want to thank God. I want to thank my teammates. I want to thank, they're thanking all the people that helped them get to where they want to go. They didn't do it themselves. You know, and then the second part to that would be, um, you know, it doesn't, have to be I. It's always I all the time. There's this macho mentality that well, I can do it by myself. I don't need anybody. You know, I have to be independent. And then the second thing I heard was this. The only difference between illness and wellness is the I or the we. Mm. The only difference mm-hmm. between illness and wellness is the I or the we. Speaking about Sam now, I get drunk. I overdose. I go to treatment. I get kicked out of houses. I go to jail, but we have been able to stay in long-term recovery. We being my family, my parents, my counselors, my mentor, my wife, my church family, my gym family, my 12-step family. We have the families we're born to, and then we have the families that we create. And I had, I allowed kids to do a Q&A at the end of uh, my talks, and I had this young lady ask me, she said, well, what do you do nowadays? when the anxiety and the depression come back or you're having a bad day that you've got the help that you needed. I didn't even have to think about it without missing a beat. I said this, what makes you think I walked away from the help? The assumption was that I got well and I just walked away from everybody to help me get there. No, I've got a team full of people that are by my side day in and day out. And this is just, it's how I get through life and it's the happiest I've ever been. And not only do they help me, but I help them. And it's, it's just, we're one big happy family all relying on each other and giving, giving each other what we need to get through life one day at a time. And, and that's what it's all about for me. Wow, man, Sam, that, that's just so great, man. And, and I hear the energy, the, you know, you're, you're a positive person. It's hard to hear that you've fallen down so often. And, um, but it's amazing where you are right now here today. And I think your, your story is just phenomenal. Looking forward to the Ted talk. And I just want to thank you for, um, you know, sharing and um, being so transparent with us today. And I want you to come back and talk to us a little bit more as things progress with you, because um, I, I see great things for you. I would love that. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I would love to come back and let everybody know where, uh, you know, what God's doing in my life and how great recovery could be. Um, you know, if you get the book, I just ask two favors. One, after you read it, please leave an honest review, but two, and more important, Give it to somebody else that might benefit from the message. Yeah, awesome. All right, Sam, thanks a lot. We are out of time, but um, we'll be talking real soon. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you, everybody, for listening. And special thanks to our producer, Donna Hardiman and Dora Shropshire. I'm Michael Fordham, and you've been listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com. But before you go, here's a little something to take with you. 
Ask God for wisdom daily, but know that your lesson can come from anybody or any situation, good or bad, friend or foe. Watch your thoughts. They become words. And watch your words. They become actions. And watch your actions. They become habits. And watch your habits. They become your character. And watch your character. It becomes your destiny. Until we meet again, take care of what becomes of you.